So I want to start off and ask you a question. What is wrong with the world today and what will make it right? Many people, when asked, what do you think is wrong with the world today and what do you think will make it right? Well, immediately we go to others. We go to the actions of others and the ways of others and the thinking of others and see what is wrong with them. But the Christian, when they are asked what is wrong with the world today, they say, I am. The Bible wants us to take a good heart look at ourselves. The Bible wants us to have a look in the mirror moment. The Bible wants us to come to terms with what we have become. There's a song that is covered by Johnny Cash and Mumford and & Sons, and the original writer is Trent Reznor. The song's called Hurt. And the lyrics go like this. What have I become? My sweetest friend. Everyone I know goes away in the end. You could have it all. My empire of dirt, I will let you down. I will make you hurt. I don't know what is meant fully by this song, but it's very clear that the man who wrote it is not happy with what he's become. He sees that there is something wrong with him that is not the way we ought to be. And no matter what we tell ourselves, no matter what kind of rose-colored glasses we have, we can try to trick ourselves into thinking that we're something that we not, we're not, but deep down, there's a burden and there's a pain about what we've become. And the only true way to fix it is to take an honest look at it. We always seem to turn something beautiful into ashes. We always seem to take abundant life and cause it to look more like abundant death. We take wholeness and we turn it to crookedness. And we take our friends and our family and our spouses that we love and we make them into close enemies at times. At him. Because we think he's holding out on us. Because we know what the good life is and what it could be and what it should be and we think he's robbed us from it because we know that he could give it to us. And so we despise him for it. The question today is not what we should be, should we put God on trial? But the question today is, what does God think about what we have become? And what will he do about it? There's a famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. <laughs> and most people don't want to acknowledge that truth. We're not courageous enough to look at it. And so we want to look away. So, um, yikes, and welcome to the Grove if this is your first time here. <laughs> We're in our series called The Gospel, and the word gospel literally translates as good news, wonderful news, the greatest news that you have ever heard. And there's a risk today, because what we're saying is that the gospel, if you do not think that the gospel is the greatest news that you've ever heard, you're likely misunderstanding it. And there's a strong risk today that you misunderstand what I say. And you lose something beautiful. So what I want to encourage you to do right now is to listen for the first like two-thirds of this with a bit of an open mind. Because this word gospel literally means good news. The greatest news that you have ever heard. And we're entering into a new part in this series called the gospel. So what we've done up until this point is we've looked at the events of Christ. This grand gospel event where we see God himself come into the earth, the incarnation, Christmas. And then we see God die on the cross. 
And then we see God risen from the grave. And then we see him ascend to his throne in heaven. And then we see that one day he has promised to return and make all things right. This is the great Christian hope. Now, that's the event that has happened and will happen. Now the question becomes, what does it mean for you? So for the rest of the series, we're looking at the gospel promises that flow from this gospel event that has already happened. What becomes true of you if this grand event of Christ has already happened? And these promises get real, but they also get real good. And what we've been saying about the gospel is it's, it's not like a diamond, but it's like a whole diamond mine. And the key, if you want to flourish in knowing God, You have to learn this art of walking into the diamond mine and knowing all these diamonds so well and grabbing the diamond that you need most in that moment in your life. And usually what I found for most people is there's two or three diamonds that really hit them, that really make them enchanted by who God is, that really make them excited to worship God. And if it's been a long time since you've been excited about God or if you've never really felt like you've been excited to worship him, it could very well be that you haven't found the diamond that you need most, this part of the gospel, this shard of who Christ is and what he's done. And the diamond that we are talking about today is the diamond that when I first heard about it about 10 years ago, it made me want to, in my seminary class, and I'd heard it before, but for whatever reason this time, I heard it clearly, it made me want to stand up and sing, and it took everything within me to stop myself from standing up and singing. And the irony is, actually, the song that I wanted to sing is the song that we're doing right after the sermon, and that was not a plan. The diamond that we are talking about today is called propitiation. So our verse, we only have one verse today, it's from 1 John 2.2, it's actually just half a verse, and it says this, He, meaning Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. Now, before I tell you what this word means, I need to set it up a bit for you. I need to show you the need for it. Otherwise, you'll miss it. Otherwise, you you will think to yourself, this doesn't sound like good news. So, we're going to be like Johnny Cash, and we're going to ask, what have I become? When the Bible describes what we have become, our nature within us, this thing within us, It's like this thing, this disease that makes us want to do the very thing we're not supposed to do. And then when we know the thing that we should do, we don't do it. And when we know the thing that we shouldn't do, we go run and do that. And the Bible uses three words to describe this thing within us. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. These are similar words, but slightly different meanings. So, sin... The meaning of this means to miss the mark. So it's it's an archery term. So you pull the arrow back and there's a mark that you're meant to hit. Now what is the mark that God has called humanity to hit? To love God, love others, and take the, the things of the kingdom of God, the things of heaven, and to cover all the earth with the things of heaven. Now here's the great problem that the Bible shows us. The mark that we're meant to hit Oftentimes, we don't hit that mark, and we don't even realize it. And worse than that, often we think we've hit the mark when we haven't. 
So it's like we're aiming at the wrong target, and we hit the target, but it's the wrong target. And that brings us to the second word, iniquity. Iniquity means that you have done something that's crooked or bent. So uh, if, if you're doing something that's crooked or bent, it means you're bent. Now, now here, here becomes another problem. If in the beginning of some journey, let's say it's 70 or 80 years long, a lifetime, and in the beginning you get crooked a little bit. Well, over time, if your mark is here, it brings you all the way over to this spot. And that's assuming that just in the beginning you were crooked, but then you straightened yourself out. But often what happens is we stay a bit crooked. And so instead of coming here, we end up all the way over here. And that's why this word repentance is so important because it turns you all the way around and brings you back to who it is that you're meant to become. Now, because you're bent, it means you can't trust yourself. It means oftentimes you think you'll be hitting the mark, but you'll be missing it. You're aiming at the wrong thing. So what do we do? If we can't trust ourselves, it means we need an authority that is greater than us that will tell us how, what, what the mark is and to teach us what hitting that mark actually looks like. That's why the Bible isn't just love God, love others, and bring the kingdom of God because we don't really know what that looks like, so God's teaching us. Now, this becomes an even greater problem. Well, because we want to be the authority. We want to figure out what the mark is. And so what's the authority that we look to? Well, then, then we begin asking, okay, well, if I can't trust myself, well, then maybe I should trust the masses. Maybe I should trust the collective wisdom of the people group that I am part of. Now, the problem with that is that that produced the Holocaust, or you say, well, well, let me take the leaders of the day. Let me see, should I trust the leaders of the day? Should I trust the government officials of the day? Or for whatever party that I'm affiliated with, should I trust them? Well, the problem with that is that also produced the Holocaust. So we say, okay, I know what to do. I will take the great thinkers, the philosophers. Well, here, let me tell you the problem with the philosophers. Throughout history, none of them can seem to agree on really much at all. So the problem we end up arriving at is we need an authority that is outside of us to tell us how we ought to live. And this is exactly what the Bible's screaming at us to do. Here it is, God himself. Listen to him, because if you don't, society breaks apart. Now, here's what you might be thinking right now. Well, can't I just decide what's good and right for me and someone else decide what is good and right for them? That sounds like a good idea to do. Well, here's the problem with that. You could go along your separate ways and be fine until, well, you interact with someone who thinks differently than you about what a great authority might be or how we should live. And then, so say somebody says to you, you know what, that thing that's yours, it's mine now. And if every single person has every right to decide what is good or right, then they have the right to say that. And you can say nothing to them unless you want to disagree with them. But then look at what happens. It's a breakdown of society. It's fighting. It's rumbling. It leads to chaos, death, hell. So we need God. And this brings us to tell, we need God to be our moral compass. Now this brings us to our third word, transgression. Transgression means to rebel. It, it has to do with this word trespass. What a transgression is, is a betrayal of trust. 
So if someone robs you, that's iniquity. They were bent, and so they did something they ought not do. But transgression is when someone you love, your neighbor, your friend, robs you. It was personal. It was intimate. And intimacy, when trust is broken, often hurts the worst. And there is an intimacy that you and I are meant to have with God. Because it's in him that we live and we move and we have our very being. In fact, in creation, God breathed life into us. Nothing looks more intimate than God breathing life into us. And so he is our dearest friend, our confidant, our refuge, our most trusted ally and friend, and the one who knows best how we ought to live, but we have betrayed him. In the story of Braveheart, William Wallace has his friends that he is with, and they are fighting against a great evil. And in the middle of a battle, he sees the great enemy's leader, and he takes off on a horse to go after this leader. And as he's closing in, a rider, a masked rider is before him, standing between him, and so they face off. And William Wallace takes him to the ground, and he's about to kill him, and he rips the mask off of his face and finds that it's his close friend who has betrayed him. And it cut him to the core. It hurt worse than the sting of a knife. Because intimacy requires trust. And when it's broken, that betrayal hurts worse than anything else. It's the worst kind of pain. And the Bible is telling us that's what we do with God. That is what our sin is. That's what our transgression is. That's what our iniquity is. And oftentimes when we think of our sin... We think of ourselves a bit, or at least we act this way, we're in a courtroom, and we're making a defense as a lawyer to everyone around us trying to show them that we're not as bad as they think we are, or God, I'm not as bad as you think I am. Don't you see that I'm trying hard? I'm doing my best here, God. Come on. Cut me a break. That's what, that's what we see, but you know what God sees? He sees us committing these heinous and vile acts and all the while shaking our fist at him because our life is not turning out the way we want it when it's really our fault that our life is the way that it is. And not just that, the problems just keep getting worse. Because in Genesis 4, we're told that sin is like a crouching jungle cat that is ready to pounce on us at any moment, stalking us as its prey. And it says in Genesis 4 that it will master you, so be careful because you can master it. But it always seems, right, that we don't master it. It has hold of us. We think we are stronger than we are, and that is where our problem becomes. And so we have lost the fight in many ways. Sin is more relentless than we are. It's like a machine of corruption that sucks us up and doesn't even spit us out, but keeps us there captive as its prisoner. And our hearts, not only that, our hearts have become so crooked and corrupt that we don't even realize that it's happened to us. And we break the heart of God over and over and over again. We are depraved people who want nothing but to take the very throne of God and make it ours so that we can rule and we can have authority. And in the end, we find that the song is right. We are left with an empire of dirt, a kingdom of nothing, a land of destruction, holding crowns 
that show us that we're king of some wasteland. But don't worry, it gets worse. Welcome to the Grove. Second point, God's wrath. So, I love how quiet it has become. God is just, and he must come down on anything that is unjust. So you have to understand this. Heaven is meant to be a perfect place. And even the smell of sin in a place of paradise will taint paradise. It means that the curse would have come in. The virus would have come in. And then paradise, heaven, becomes hell all over again. But before I say anything else about God's hatred of sin and his wrath towards it, let me just tell you this, that wrath is a product of love. So Elise, my wife, when she was working as a counselor for at-risk youth and foster children, there was, a, there was a student that they had to restrain. He was just not doing well, so they were restraining him. And he was kicking all around. And one of the counselors said to the kid, Elise is pregnant, stop kicking. So immediately in that moment, on purpose, he kicked her right in the stomach. Now, I tell you this story to tell you that when I tell people this, the people who are the most angry, the people who are most wrathful, the, the people who would look like they, in that moment they might have hit this kid are the people who are closest to Elise, who love her the most. Because wrath is always a product of love, at least when it has to do with God. So let me read some Bible verses to you. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's Romans 2, 5. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why would you suppress the truth? Well, because we're bent and we're crooked. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't be deceived by empty words. In other words, can you handle this truth? And the answer is probably likely you can't handle it. How could you handle this? Because what this is saying is that the waters of God's wrath are being built up, piling up against you. And the hand of God is holding these wrathful waters back. But at some point, he will release his hand. At some point, the hammer must come down, and at some point, the axe is laid at the foot of the tree, and it must strike. And just as it happens, just as the waters are released, just as the hammer is beginning to come down, and just as the axe is about to strike, a hero comes out from the shadows and is a great light. A king, a servant comes who are crooked and his name is Jesus Christ. And this is our third point, God's love. Finally, the good news. Here we go. Here's the question. Does, what does Christ come to fight? Is he coming to fight against his father and the wrath that the father is bringing down against sin? And the answer is no, he is not. He is coming to absorb all of the wrath that the father has for you right in your place. He's coming to drink it all up. Let me finally define for you what propitiation is. It is the great sacrifice of Christ where he 
drinks up the cup of the Father's wrath in your place so that you get nothing but favor. The favor of God poured out to you because he drank up the cup of wrath. And it was his love that drove him to do something so drastic, so wild, and so reckless. On the cross, all the wrath that the Father had for all of your sins is unleashed and redirected not towards you, but towards your great Savior, Jesus Christ. The Father crushed the Son instead of you. Someone once told me that that's bad parenting. And it is, unless we know that this is true, that before creation, God had this great plan. He, he knew what we were going to do. The Father, Son, and Spirit, the divine council, the council of, they got together, it's called the Council of Redemption, and they said, hey, we're going to do this anyways. We're going to let creation happen anyways, knowing what humanity is going to do, because by doing it, we're going to let humanity see the great love that we have for humanity, and it's once they see it, then they're going to see, we're going to see who God is, and we're not going to be able to help it, but we're going to go running to him because of his great love. Love has to be costly if it's real. Real love is costly. This is the greatest cost that could ever be paid. Christ dealt with it all. Sin, transgression, iniquity. And what I want to do right now is I want to read to you something all the way back in the Old Testament where we are foretold of what's going to happen at the cross. This is why, this is why you can trust the Bible because it always says these things are going to happen and then they happen. So this is Isaiah 52 and 53. I got quite a bit to read here, but don't miss it. Come in. Focus, like, focus in the best you can. Here we go. Because if you miss this, I'm telling you, if you miss this, you're going to miss something about God, and it might ruin your relationship with him. Don't let that happen. All right. Isaiah 52. I hear you guys trying to get there. Isaiah, I'm at Isaiah 52, 13. I'm going to read all the way through 53, 10, and I'm going to skip around a little bit, so good luck following me. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Okay, this suffering servant's going to come and be exalted. Well, why? Why is he going to be exalted? Well, he grew up before him like, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, and had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, God came into the world, and he humbled himself to look not beautiful, but look in such a way that we would have no desire to look at him. And then it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. We, all we like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, this is our iniquity, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, we're twisted, we're bent, we're crooked, we run from him, but he makes a way. By being this, oppressed, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. He had all the power in the cosmos. He could have just simply gotten down off of the cross, but he subjected himself to this on purpose. Why? Well, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off for the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man, although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when he made his soul an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, what does that mean? That means that by him doing this, the will of the Lord is accomplished, which is God gets you back. He plucks you up out. He has shown you a grace that's absolutely so irresistible but that you can't help but go running towards him. And if you're not seeing that right now, you're misunderstanding the gospel. And then it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to become accounted righteous. And he bears their iniquities. This is is what it means. You are his prize. And he saw the cross as a joy that was set before him, not because the cross was a joy, it was a terror, but because you are his joy. And he would get you by way of the cross. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, for the rebellious, for the treasonous, for the ones who want authority, for the ones who want to steal his throne. The waters of the wrath of God have been unleashed and diverted away from you towards Jesus Christ in your place. The long foretold suffering servant king who would come as your hero to fight against your sin without destroying you by going to the cross and absorbing all of your sin and all of the wrath that was meant for you. The tension of God's love and his wrath, his justice and his wrath, they reach their heights, their climax, the greatest part of each of them right there at the cross, where somehow, someway, the love of God and the wrath of God kiss at the cross. And it creates an explosion, this beautiful collision that changes you. And makes you see what God was willing to do to get you. And the night before Jesus was betrayed, he's in the garden. The night before Jesus was crucified, he's in the garden. And he prays a prayer. He's with his father. He knows what's coming. And he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. But your will be done. Let this cup of your wrath that I'm about to drink on the cross, let it pass from me, but your will be done. He knew what was coming at him. And it was a joy, but he was terrified of it. Because, why? Well, because he was about to lose his father. That's the terror of the cross. And we know that he knows what he's going through. He actually begins to sweat blood. This is something that happens to people if they're under enough stress. The medical term is hematidrosis. And he experiences that. And then the next day, he receives a crown of thorns that dig into his skull. 
and he would receive the, ne- the lashing of a cat of nine tails. This a whip with claws at the end of it. Now, interesting that it would have claws at the end of it. Remember how sin is described as this pouncing jungle cat that's ready to dig its claws into you. And so the claws, instead of being dug into you, are dug into Christ. And as they dig in and the whip is pulled back, flesh is torn from his back. And then he carries his cross. And as he gets there, the nails go into his wrists and into his feet. And as those nails are hammered in, it's like the hammer of God's wrath that was meant for you are penetrating him. And then there he's hung on the cross, betrayed by humanity that he loves. Betrayed by his friends, denied by his friends, mocked by the ones that he came to save. This is what humanity has become. What have we become? That, right there. Ones who would crucify our very God who loves us. And then, every time he's taking a breath, see, the weight of his body is beginning to crush his lungs and he's not able to breathe. And so in order, when someone's crucified, in order to breathe, they have to pull up. But there's nothing to pull up by except by the nails that are through his wrists and the nail that is through his feet. And so he pulls up with his wrists and he pushes up with his feet as the the nails dig even further in, in order to take a breath. And then it gets even worse. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only place in all of the Bible where Jesus doesn't call God Father is right here. He calls him God. Why? Because in that moment, all the favor that the Father had for the Son is turned towards you. And all the wrath that the Father has for your sin is turned towards his Son. And he crushes him in your place. So he might have favor on you. And he did it for you. The wrath of God is satisfied. That is propitiation, my friends. And if this does not make you want to worship God, you're missing something about what I'm saying. While we are what is wrong with the world today, through propitiation, we are made right. And not only that, as Jesus is pierced on the cross, it's as if heaven itself is pierced. And all the goodness, all the blessings, all the wonders of heaven start flowing into you by the piercing of Christ on the cross and fill up in your heart. And then you begin to live as people who bring heaven to earth. You begin hitting the mark. The more you live for him. Because he is your propitiation. So let's stand up right now and sing to him and of him and for him. Let me pray. Father, we pray that our hearts would hear what we are meant to hear from you today. That we wouldn't hear this and think, this doesn't sound right, but we would hear this and say, oh, nothing is more right than this. Nothing can be right without this. Justice and love at the same time satisfied. This is the way, God. Help us to see that truth. And help us to respond by hitting the mark more and more. Not because we have to, but because we want to. We want to love you. We want to love others. And we want to see your kingdom come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.